the GNCC Church. I'm Chuck Lee Master with Team Faith. And man, it's good to see everybody here. I love being a racetrack pastor. I really do. We get all kinds of stuff. The wind is blowing today. There's dust flying everywhere. There's a race going on in the background. And uh, going to normal church is, well, a little bit boring sometimes. So welcome welcome to the racetrack. Hey, Lord, thanks a lot for today. This, uh, this is the day you've made. We're with Joyce. We'll be glad in it. And I just pray that you calm us down right now. All the distractions around us. This is great because you put us, you put this love in our heart to be here. But right now, we just want you to be first in our lives. So just calm us down, help us to focus, give me your words, and speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, times are changing, and they're changing pretty quick. I remember my dad. He was 22 years old when I was born, so 22 years older than me, obviously. And uh, he would tell me stories about when he was in high school. And I thought, man, that sounds so old. I mean, I, I, as I got older and that movie Grease came out, I remember watching Grease with John Travolta and, and uh, you know, the blue jeans, the white shirts, the leather jackets, and the classic cars. And my dad, he did have a 57 Chevy. And I thought, man, that was so long ago. Well, I'm 32 years older than my son. And when I tell him stories of my high school, he's like, you're from a different century, <laughs> which, which technically is true. <laughs> But I remember this one time, went to school, I forget, 10th, 11th grade, something like that, and Shane Hurd brought his shotgun to school to show Mr. Harris, the science teacher. And Mr. Harris looks at it, he's like, oh man, that's a really nice gun, Shane. Just put it in the closet over there, you can pick it up after school. No big deal. That's just how we rolled back then. A couple years ago, when Trevor was in the 7th grade, I got a phone call, hey, we need to search your son's locker. I'm like, what is going on? We found a 22 casing on the floor near his locker. I'm like, oh, heaven forbid. <laughs> so they searched his locker, they searched several other lockers for a 22 shell. Now Trevor and I, we go shooting quite a bit. And after every time we're at the range, he's checking his hoodie, like, is there a nine millimeter casing in my pockets? Because God forbid, if that happens, man, I It'll be, you know, from then on, I don't have bail money, so it'll be plexiglass and telephone. You know, we, we don't want that to happen. But as, as the world is so rapidly changing, and we are seeing the advance of evil, to put it bluntly, there are two responses going around. As we talk to one another, as we talk to different people, there, there are two basic responses. One of them is, man, this world's going to hell in a handbasket. This is awful. And I, I agree. I mean, having grown up in the 80s, uh, we had the movie Red Dawn, but we weren't really under threat of a Russian invasion. We hadn't, we weren't really under a threat of nuclear war because Gorbachev was staying in his lane. We had Ronald Reagan and you know peace through strength. The wall came down. I would dare say, and this is my personal opinion, but we're closer to nuclear war now than we've ever been in my entire life. So I get it when people say, man, this is terrible. I, I, I pity the people that are having kids right now. I would not want to bring up a kid in this environment. Speaking of kids, you know, you guys, you ain't got a chance. That's what I hear a lot of people say. And then there are a few people, and I'm starting to hear the phrase, the phrase, uh, for such a time as this. And that's my heartbeat. If you've been to these services before, you know I say on purpose, for a purpose. God created you uniquely, specifically, on purpose, for a purpose, for such a time as this. Like, if you are in the, if you're in the 10th grade, you're here because God put you here for such a time as this. Wherever you are in your workplace, for such a time as this, God has a plan that he wants to use, even you. But do you know where that phrase comes from? 
It's the book of Esther. So we want to jump into the book of Esther tonight to find out how does that re actually relate to our lives in 2022. So here we go. Chapter 1, verse 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, that's the king's name. Sounds like a sneeze. It's the king's name. Ahasuerus, bless you. The Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. Now, as I did research for this message, it's funny. I look at secular websites and they say, oh, the book of Esther is made up. But yes, there was a king named Ahasuerus. Yes, he did have 127 provinces. Yes, his kingdom did extend all the... Yes, yes, the Bible agrees with everything here, but it's a made up book. Got it. It's not a made up book, but this Ahasuerus is also known as Xerxes. And you might recognize Xerxes if you watch the movie 300. It's the same guy. So here we go. In those days when the king Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The third year of his reign. That puts it at 482 B.C. Now, as we always do at GNCC Church, we want to be careful to provide proper historical context. So we'll back the train up just a few years, about 100 years, 586 B.C. 586 B.C. is when Nebuchadnezzar marched on Jerusalem. He laid siege to the city. He burned the city. He sacked it. He killed a bunch of people and carried everybody else off as captives. Just like God had warned was going to happen in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Just like Jeremiah had warned was going to happen. And then, 539 B.C., about 47 years later, Babylon falls and the Medo-Persians come in. And you can read about this in Daniel chapter 5 or on Wikipedia. You can read about the Persian Empire taking over the Babylonians. Immediately after that, the Persian king Cyrus, he lets a contingent go back to Jerusalem. They rebuild the walls. They rebuild the temple. They dedicate the temple in 516 B.C., which is exactly 70 years from the time that Jerusalem was slayed siege by Nebuchadnezzar, exactly like Jeremiah prophesied was going to happen 70 years to the letter. And then in 485 B.C., Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, becomes the Persian king. His capital city is Susa, which is in modern-day Iran. Three years later, three years into his kingdom, he throws a party. And it's a party, like you've never seen. 180 days, six-month-long party. The party culminates with a seven-day feast in the capital city in Susa there, and it's a feast for anybody and everybody. Young, old, rich, poor, doesn't matter who you are, everybody's invited to this seven-day feast. On the seventh day, the king gets drunk. So you know this isn't going anywhere good. The king gets drunk, and he says, Bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Now there's a little bit of a debate here. Bring the queen out with her crown. Does that mean without her veil? That would be kind of scandalous in the Persian culture because the queen always wore a veil. Or does it mean only her crown, which would truly be scandalous? Whatever the meaning of this is, Vashti says, you know what? I'm not a little plaything. I'm not going to be belittled like that. I'm not going to be demeaned. I'm not going to do that. She says no. She says no to the king. She says no. Go home. You're drunk. Makes the king furious, obviously. And, and so the king, he goes to his advisors and he says, what should I do with Queen Vashti? She's defied me. And one of his advisors tells him, king, you can't let this stand. 
If you let her talk back to you, all the wives in the provinces will be talking back to their husbands. And next thing you know, we'll have a mutiny on our hands. You can't let this stand. You've got to banish her. He says, well, I think I'll banish her then. Very chivalrous, right? He's like, she's demoted, no longer the queen. Chapter 2, verse 1. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Now, the way this opens up after these things kind of makes me kind of makes me ask the question, after what things? And so you have to have, again, the historical context. In, in uh, verse 16 of this very passage, it says this is now the seventh year of his reign. So four years have passed. So this puts it about 479 B.C. History tells us that in 480 B.C., Xerxes marched on Greece. He conquered Athens, but then he got bogged down in the Battle of Salamis in 480 B.C. He was actually defeated. The Greeks stood up to the Persians, defeated the Persians, and then the Greeks went on the offense. And Xerxes, kind of, he came home with his tail tucked between his legs. And when he got home, he got home to an empty house. And he remembered Queen Vashti. He's like, oh man, but I banished her. And it's written in stone. I can't change it. What should I do? Now, obviously, the king had a harem. But, you know, God created us. And he created us to have relationship with him and with each other. And even for a king who did not acknowledge that God even existed, there was still that hole in his heart, that longing to know and to be known. It's our highest calling to know and be known first with our creator and then with each other. And the physical just doesn't get it done. He comes home after a hard day's work, and he doesn't have a queen. His advisors recognize that there's a sadness within him. And they say to him, Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young women be sought out for the king, and let's have a beauty pageant. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king. Yeah, I bet it did. <laughs> I bet it did. Basically, what we have here is the bachelor mixed with who wants to marry a millionaire, mixed with a little bit of fear factor, I imagine, because this guy's a little bit nuts. But they have a beauty pageant. They search the whole land. They're looking for beautiful women. Now, there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. You follow that? We just talked about this a second ago. Mordecai was the great-grandson of somebody who had been carried away into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar. That captivity spread the whole Jewish nation all around the Babylonian Empire. Now it's all around the Persian Empire. And Mordecai happens to be right in the very heart of it all. He's in Susa, the citadel. He was bringing up Hadassah, that's her, her Jewish name, that is Esther, her Persian name, the daughter of his uncle, makes her his cousin, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had beautiful figures, was lovely to look at, and when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the capital, or the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. She was taken, as in taken, like taken the movie? Yeah, she was not volunteered. She was taken is what the scriptures tell us, which actually kind of gives me a little bit of a relief because 
this huge beauty pageant. And Josephus, the uh, historian, the Jewish historian, tells us that there were hundreds of contestants in this beauty pageant. The prize was to become the queen. The consolation was you get to be part of the harem, which just takes women down to the very basest. It's we have so much more worth. Created in God's image, we have so much more worth than that. And so Esther, here she is. She's put into this situation that she didn't volunteer for. She's cast into it. And the very next verse says, And the young woman, that would be Esther, pleased him and won his favor. Won the favor of Haggai, the guy that's in charge of this beauty contest. The young woman pleased him and won his favor. I need to camp out on that for just a minute here. Paul, uh, in, in writing letters to the church in Colossae, he said, Whatever you do, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, whatever our job is, we aren't working for the man. We're working for the king. And Esther seemed to have an understanding of that. Joseph, in the book of Genesis, he had an understanding of that when he was, he was sold into slavery, worked his way up through Potiphar's house, got thrown into prison. The highs, the lows, everywhere he went, he did his best and he got elevated. A couple years ago, that terrible, that terrible year, 2020, right about this time of the year, I got laid off from my normal job. My normal job is I sell compressor, compressor parts, machine shop services for these huge compressors used in oil and gas industry. So I go to oil refineries, natural gas transmission stations, but when COVID hit, everything just kind of came to a screeching halt. I got laid off. And immediately, like the, the, the evening I got laid off, I was already online looking for a job. I had said, I'm going to work for Amazon. I knew it would be temporary, but I said, I'll go to work for Amazon. They're hiring. And I heard about the, you know, the, the stimulus money coming and whatever, but I really just felt within my heart, I'm supposed to work. Paul even said, a man who doesn't work shouldn't eat. You know, worse than, if he doesn't take care of his family, worse than an infidel. It's just been in my blood to work for, since I was like 10 years old. Just knew I needed to work. So I go to work for Amazon, one of the worst jobs of my life. I hated the place. It's crazy. They made me, they put me on stow, which just meant that if stuff comes in, I'm stowing it. So that when you order it, somebody can go pick it. And all I was doing was taking from, from a box, I would scan it, and I would find a, a, an empty spot. They had thousands of these little bins that were stuffed and overflowing and you take this widget you scan it and you stuff it somewhere wherever it would fit and move on to the next and there's a pace count that you have to make and uh, i just made up my mind uh, as, as soon as i figured out the ropes i said i'm gonna be the best employee that this place has and out of three shifts they had like a thousand people working on these shifts i didn't get to be the best employee they had i made it number three i was the number three producer within two weeks they didn't give me a chance. They pulled me off that task, put me on to a different task, put me on to a different task. Next thing I knew, manager knew my name. The manager's manager knew my name. They were recruiting me, asking me to come work for Amazon. I'm like, not on your life. I can't wait to get that phone call back. Go back to high-tech compressor, man. This is rough, but I made up my mind because that's what a Christian does. As a Christian, we should absolutely be the best employees that anybody could hire. When there's a fish on a business card, that should represent integrity and character. That should mean that the person shows up, that they're gonna do the best job possible, that they're gonna be clean and professional and clean language. Unfortunately, that fish on the business card kind of means the opposite these days. We've been wrong about this. You see, we're not serving the man, we're serving the king. And we need to get that straight within us. We should be the ones that are the best employees that are leading by example, 
no matter the circumstance, not complaining. We just put our heads down. We get the job done. Our boss knows that we can, that they can count on us. That's the mindset that Esther had. People saw her. It says, now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the others, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So she wins the contest, she's the queen. Now we come to verse 19. Mordecai, her uncle, has some sort of semi-official job in or around the palace. We're not really sure what it is. What we do know is that Mordecai is at the gates of the palace and he overhears a plot to assassinate the king. Now you gotta think about this for a second because if I overhear a plot to assassinate some of our political leaders, I might just say, I didn't, I'll pretend I didn't hear that. <laughs> but truthfully, here's a king who didn't know God, didn't acknowledge God, and Mordecai, he pulls Esther aside, hey, you're the queen, let the king know that there are a couple guys plotting to kill him. She passes the word on to the queen. There's an investigation. Sure enough, comes out to be true. These two men, they get hung, and Mordecai's name gets written down in the king's log. Save the king's life. And life just goes on. Chapter 3. We're introduced to a guy named Haman. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agite, son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. We don't know anything about Haman at this point, except that he's got a really big ego. <laughs> this promotion really goes to his head. It says, And all the king's servants who were at the gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. I like this Mordecai dude. When it matters, he tells the appropriate person to step off. I am not doing I'm not bowing to you, and I'm not bowing to the culture. You see, all of Mordecai's co-workers, all the people around him, they pull him aside. Mordecai, why don't you bow to Haman? It's like the law that you need to bow to Haman. He's an important man. We're all bowing. You need to bow too. And he says, No, I'm a Jew. We bow only to God. And he would not compromise. Now this is hitting home. Because we've got, we've got what we call a cancel culture. You want to see what a cancel culture is? Read on, right here. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay homage to him, Mordecai or Haman was filled with fury. As a matter of fact, he said, "Kill him, <laughs> kill them all." Not just Mordecai, but he's a Jew. Tell me more about these Jews. They what? They only worship one God. Well, we're a polytheistic society. We worship lots of gods. As a matter of fact, Xerxes is a god. If you watch the movie 300, you know that's how he portrays himself, as he's a god. That was customary of the day, is that the king was the god. Haman thought himself to be a god. And you're telling me there's only one god, and you're a Jew? How many of these Jews do we have living in this province? Well, I don't agree with that. I'm going to cancel you. Literally, kill you. <laughs> That's my plan is to kill you. Now today we live in this culture where it's so easy. We're not being asked to take the knee. We're just asked to be silent and to not speak the truth and to just give a pass. And there are people that are standing up all around us. Coach Kennedy, the, the football player or the football coach who wanted to pray after the game, after everybody was dismissed, he gets taken to the Supreme Court. Uh, Jack Phillips, Masterpiece Fake uh, Cake, Cake Bakery uh, goes to the Supreme Court, wins his case because he won't make a, a same-sex wedding cake. 
soon as he gets through that, somebody asks him to make a coming out reveal for a transgender party, and he won't do that. He's back in court all over again. These people are taking a stand, but uh, they're not alone. Mordecai was not alone. There were lots of other people with him. It's just that the eyes were only on that one. And in our culture right now, there are people standing up, and eyes are on them, but they're not alone. Reading on, Haman pulls the king aside. He says, there's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. They're called Jews. Their laws are different from those from every other people. They do not keep, keep the king's laws. Now that wasn't actually even true. It's not that they didn't keep, keep the king's laws. It's that they wouldn't take the knee. They won't take the knee and bow before Haman or bow before the king. As far as the other laws, it was Mordecai who actually saved the king's life, right? So Mordecai says, or Haman says, it's not to the king's prophet to even tolerate these people. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. <laughs> and, and the king says, wow, you don't say, there are people out there that don't like me? You wanted to take care of the problem? Go ahead. You take care of the problem for me. I'll tell you what, there are lots of advantages to being a Christian. One, you get you know, like eternal life. You get to go to heaven. But also, if you're walking humbly before the Lord, your ego doesn't sway you so easily as it did this king here. Your ego doesn't control you the way that it does this king and many other people that we get to see even around us. So power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. And so Haman says, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to set a date. It's going to be almost a year from now. It'll be 11 months from now. And then we're going to rise up and we're going to exterminate all the Jews in this, in this country. Last week, we talked about spiritual warfare. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's real. The same spirit that worked in, in Hitler was the same spirit that was working in 479 B.C., it's the same spirit that's alive and well in our culture even today. And God's people were on the line. But you remember what? There was a promise that God made. There was a promise that God made in Genesis chapter 3 that He was going to put enmity between you and the woman, so speaking to Satan, between you and the woman, your seed and her seed. You will bruise his heel, he will bruise your head. And then God, in Genesis chapter 12, comes to a guy named Abraham and says, I'm going to use you to accomplish my purposes. It's the Abrahamic covenant. Through you, there's going to be a nation of people with land. The whole world is going to be blessed through you. When I was, in, uh, when I was going through basic training, we were in line for the chow hall. And uh, one of the drill sergeants said, hey, I got a question, a trivia question for all you guys. And if you can answer my trivia question, you get to go to the head of the chow hall line. Of course, if you don't get the right answer, you get to do push-ups. You'll have an opportunity to improve your physical physique. <laughs> and I, he said, it's a Bible question. My hand shot straight up. I was a preacher's kid. I knew whatever he was going to ask, I knew the answer. He said, all right, Lee Master, what's the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention the name of God? And my jaw hit the floor. What? There's a book in the Bible that doesn't mention the name of God? Every book mentions the name of God. So I had no answer. I got to improve my physical conditioning. <laughs> and I got to go last into the chow hall. It's Esther. I learned that from a drill sergeant. And as you read through the book of Esther, sure enough, there's not a name of God. There are no miracles. There are no prophecies. There's no revelations. There's no anointing of oil. There's none of this religious stuff that you see everywhere else. 
Why is that? You know why? Because God uses His people. This is one of the coolest books in the Bible because God totally uses His people that He set in place. So we go on. Mordecai learned all that had been done, that there was a decree to kill the Jews. He tore his clothes, put on sackcloth. He cried with a bitter cry. Word gets back to Esther. Hey, your uncle is going crazy in the streets. And he's wearing sackcloth, so he can't come into the palace. She can't go out of the palace, so she sends an intermediary. She sends a messenger. Mordecai, what's wrong? And so Mordecai sends back. He said he sends back. Here's the edict from Haman. Command Esther to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. Get Esther involved. Get her to do something. So Hadathuk that's the messenger, did so. And Esther sends word back to Mordecai. And she says to Mordecai, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, and that is to be put to death, except for the one to whom the king will extend his scepter. That person may live, but as for me, I have not been called to come into the king in these 30 days. You get it, Mordecai? That's death. I'll die. If I go into the king uninvited, I die. And the king, he ain't lonely. He hasn't called for me in a month. Mordecai's response. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. Um, and Esther, remind you, you're a Jew. This edict is to kill all the Jews of which you are one. It says, four, if you keep silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come into the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther, you were created on purpose for a purpose. This is your time. Now's the time. God has put you in this position to do something. He doesn't need you. He can do a miracle like he did with the Red Sea. He, he's got, he can do whatever he wants to do, but he chose to use people. This is your time. So Esther sends back words. She says, okay, pray for me. I love, I love that God keeps his promises. And he has many ways of doing it, but his favorite way to do it is through his people. He uses people. And so we know at this point that the Jews aren't going to get wiped out here. This book is about God in action through his people, people stepping out in faith, saying that, hey God, this is scary, but I'm going to be a part of what you're doing. I'm going to stand up. Even if my voice is shaking, I'm going to stand up. I remember uh, last year, maybe two years ago, there was a, a video put out, uh, an ER nurse. I think her name was Nicole Whitney. Nicole Whitley, the ER nurse. And she started talking about the facts of what we were facing. And she was backing it up with true facts, medical information. Her voice was shaking the whole video through. But I couldn't turn away from it because what she was saying was true. And nowadays, what she said is actually pretty common knowledge. It's, it's acknowledged. But I'll tell the truth, even if my voice is shaking. God's purposes. You see, God is the author of all truth. And we have the opportunity in our culture to stand up, not just for biblical truth, but any truth is God's truth. And so to stand up for that truth, even in the difficult days, of which these days we have more opportunities than ever before in all of my life. Esther had that opportunity. And I love the way that she did it. She said, pray for me. She said, matter of fact, three days of fasting and prayer, and then I will go into the king. 
She goes into the king. He holds out the golden scepter. She doesn't die. He says, what can I do for you, my queen? She says, well, I would like for you and Haman to come to dinner at my place. She said, I'd be delighted. Gets to dinner and he says, so my queen, you have me here. You have my full attention. What is it that you really want? And she says, well, I would really like for you and Haman to come to my house again for dinner. He said, okay. And that begs the question, well, why did she do that? Why, did she chicken out in that moment? I mean, why, why didn't she just tell him what was going on? Why did he have to come back again? I think, and we're not told exactly why we did this, but you can infer because what happened in between the two dinners. But I think that what happened with her is she realized that the time isn't right right now. Like there was a spirit within her, a spirit of wisdom that said the time isn't right right now. <laughs> she employed some shrewd tactics at this point and she delayed for a reason, for a purpose. Jesus, in the New Testament, he, he had his 12 disciples, and he sent them out on a mission trip. And when he sent them out on a mission trip, he said, Be innocent as doves and wise as snakes, shrewd as snakes. You see, as Christians, we're not supposed to be gullible. We shouldn't be believing every conspiracy theory that comes across our social media feed. We should be the ones that are wise and discerning. And that's what Esther did. She employs some discernment here. And in between the first dinner and the second dinner, two things happen. Number one, Haman, his hatred for Mordecai grows, and he builds a gallows. And he decides that he is going to personally and publicly hang Mordecai, because Mordecai won't take the knee. Lost my place here. Oh, the second thing, the second thing that happened, this is pretty big. The second thing that happened is that the king couldn't sleep. And so what do you do when you can't sleep? You count sheep or you read the king's log because that will surely put you to sleep. So he can't sleep. He says, hey, read the chronicles to me. And so he's being read the story of his kingdom. And it comes to a part where a guy named Mordecai saves his own life by exposing a plot to kill him. And the king says, hey, what did we ever do for that Mordecai fellow? And the answer was nothing. We didn't do anything for him. So the next morning, Haman comes into work. I imagine carrying his Starbucks coffee. He comes into the office, and the king says to him, Haman, what would you do to honor the guy that you really, really like, that you really want to honor the most? And of course, Haman thinks, ooh, the king wants to honor me. And so Haman says, well, king, what you should do is give this guy a brand new set of, uh, of clothes. You ought to put him on your personal horse. You ought to have a herald run out in front of him and tell everybody how awesome he is. And the king said, that's an awesome idea. I love it. Do it for Mordecai. <laughs> and Haman had to go out there and tell everybody how awesome Mordecai was. And then they had that second dinner. Now the stage is truly set. Esther's patience is about to pay off. Esther, why do you really have me here? Well, king, my love, my darling, my honey, whatever, there's a plot to kill me. What are you talking about? Who wants to kill you? That man right there, Haman. And the king was furious. What's this plot all about? Well, there's this edict to wipe out all the Jews in your kingdom. I'm a Jew. And the king is furious. He goes out on the balcony to, to get some fresh air, or smoke a cigar, or whatever they do out there. And Haman falls 
on Esther, like, please save my life. The king comes back in and he sees Haman falling on her, and now his fury is through the roof, and he orders Haman to be hanged on Mordecai's gallows. And then the king says, you know what? I am so sorry, my queen, that I signed this edict. It is the law of the Medes and the Persians. It can't be changed. I can't undo this, but what I can do is tell you that your people are by decree of the king allowed to defend themselves. Anybody that takes up arms against them in the 11th month of this year, you can, you can defend yourself, defeat them, and take all their goods for your own household. And by that, God's people were spared. By that, because that's obviously what happened, by that, God's promises that he made to Abraham advanced. By that, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, just like all the prophecies said, through the line of Judah, the kingdom of David, became the Messiah, the perfect one that never sinned, lived the life that we couldn't live, died that death on the cross, paid the penalty for our sin, buried, rose again on the third day, blessing to the entire world. Why? Because there's a book in the Bible that doesn't have God's name in it. Because there's a book in the Bible where God's people said, yes, I'm scared to death, but I want to be used by God for such a time as this. That, I think, is where we find ourselves today. Lord, thank you for the story of Esther. Thank you that your name's not even mentioned in there, but your people are. Your fingerprints are all over this book. It gives us courage to step out, to be different, to be unique, to be wise, to be shrewd. Lord, as we go through our lives, may we look for opportunities to share the truth of who you are and to share the truth in love, to share the truth in the way that it can be received. Bless us as we go, and may we meet again in two weeks. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much. Pleasure to hang out with you. Need anything? My name's Chuck. Come see me. Otherwise, have a great race, and I'll see you in a couple weeks.